Beth, we got Elijah on the line. What do you want to ask him? Obviously, you have a team. I'm curious as to how you found your team. I've met a lot of people along the way. A lot of people come in just through basic networking, just reaching out, looking for deals, trying to raise money from people. And when you find someone that you think would add value to your operation, ask them to to come on board. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. And this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Streamline Capital Group, and I'm super excited for today's show. We've got two great people on the line with us today. We've got Elijah Brown as our experienced investor and Beth Underhill as our aspiring investor. Elijah, Beth, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. Great to have you guys. As is tradition, Elijah, you're going to be up to the plate first. Love my baseball references, though I haven't played baseball in like, I don't know, 30 years. Elijah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into apartment investing. First of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I got started in college, uh, my junior year of college. started watching a lot of YouTube videos, fell down the YouTube rabbit hole with uh, channels like Graham Stephan, uh, Chris Crone, Phil Pustajowski, and a few others. I just determined that I wanted to get into rental property investing. I, I initially started with single family, but I didn't have enough cash to do it and I didn't have a job. So I knew I wouldn't be able to qualify for a loan or have down payment money. I actually called my cousin and my best friend and convinced them to jump in on it with me. They each put up $10,000 and I had a little bit of my own. And we went and we bought our first single family house in Florida. I did that four more times. And then I convinced my coworkers to go in on a sixplex. And that's when I started with multifamily. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you you're you're one of the few that started early on, you know, before you had a career in something else. I wish I had the same drive, the same energy. I remember looking at something when I was in college and you know, looking at house hacking with some friends, but never never pulled the trigger. So good on you. Yeah, I was going for the investment banking route. I was doing internships at I had an internship at Bank of America. I uh, you know worked at a hedge fund and I realized that this 80 hour, 90 hour work week thing. And it was just not for me. Um, And so I did not want to continue down that path. And I found real estate instead. Nice. And what what were some of the challenges that you had getting started? First of all, not having cash. It's hard to get into deals without cash. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn early how to raise money from other people, friends, family, and investors, Mm -hmm. but also being so young. uh, You know, I was just really young doing it. Realtors don't want to work with you. People don't really trust you. They just write you off. And so you have to establish some sort of credibility that people will take you seriously. Mm-hmm. That was that was difficult to do. Yeah. So how, how did you get over that hurdle? I mean, and I, I see this happen a lot. A lot of young guys come to the game and I realize that I'm 40 something, you know, somebody who's early 20s and I, I don't know why this is, but 
maybe because I have two daughters in the early 20s, you know, I almost immediately dismissed them as, okay, that's cute. How did you, how did you get over that? How did you actually build your credibility being so young? Yeah, it was a lot of like fake it till you make it. Um, I had, you know, imposter syndrome, but it, it came down to really two things. It was number one, being as educated as I could be about it. So I, I watched a lot of videos, networked with people, read books. Um, but then also I just brought a lot of confidence to the table. It sounds crazy, but you know, I was really young, just like going out and like emailing everyone I knew being like, I need to raise a hundred thousand dollars. Who's in here's a PowerPoint presentation. And so I really didn't have much experience, but people trusted me and that was incredible. I'll tell you something else, and this may be, this can be good or bad, depending on what you're talking about. I think as, as I've gotten older, I've, I've gotten more and more inhibitions, you know, there's more and more things that I, that I don't want to do. And, you know, may, maybe as a 20 something year old, you just didn't have that fear, that same, well, that's not going to work. I might as, not, might as well not even try it type syndrome that a lot of 40 somethings have. Ignorance is bliss. And like when I was younger, I definitely wore a nice pair of rose colored glasses and I was hungry as well. You know, I was willing to put in the time. I got a job after college and I was working a lot of hours, but I'd come home and I still like work till midnight just trying to put deals together. Yeah, you, you've got to have the energy and the drive to be able to, to do that. We call it moonlighting. Well, I was daylighting and moonlighting. Yeah. I was, working at my corporate job and also putting deals together, taking days off to put deals together and just trying to make it work. Yeah, it was not easy, but made it happen. Awesome. Well, what uh, where, where, where was that corporate job of yours? Yeah, that was um, at a, uh, a real estate investment trust in California. They specialize in healthcare real estate. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. How long did you stay there? I was there for four years. Actually, uh, I wrapped up my time there just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Nice. Congratulations. I'm going to make an assumption. Are you doing the, the real estate full-time now? I am. I am. Finally, I do not have W2 anymore. It's just me. Awesome. Awesome. That That's great. I'll tell you, you know, it's the, the, they are the golden handcuffs. I got rid of my W2. I must say I got rid of, I, I retired from my job. Also no longer have that W-2 and it's great until you go to a bank and ask for a home loan. That's, that's, that's my opinion. You know, it's, it's probably the best thing ever. And then the bankers are looking across the table at you. What do you mean you don't have a W-2? Other than that one little technicality, you know, I, I think that's uh that's a great, great place to be. So four years at, an, at, at, at a real estate investment firm. Now, how much of what you did there translates to what you do now in multifamily? Very little. I started out doing asset management and for uh, senior living facilities and then moved over to leasing for medical office space. Mm -hmm. And um, what does translate was corporate structure and, you know, being able to present things to people and have professional conversations and communicate. Mm -hmm. So that, that was definitely the important part, but the mechanics of actually doing deals um, from start to finish, uh, almost not at all. Um, usually in those corporate settings, it's like you are in one department doing one task, you know, corporate finance, asset management, investments, um, yeah. you know, capital markets, whatever it is. But when you're, you know, starting a private equity fund or you're doing apartment investing as a mom and pop investor, you know, you're really wearing all the hats in the beginning. Um, you know, you've got to know how to um, negotiate and put deals under contract, conduct due diligence, um, you know, 
negotiate with a bank and close and raise money and asset management. It's you have to do all of it. You really don't get that from the corporate experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. I mean, the larger the corporation, the more likely every employee is to be specialized in, in one small task and, and the less likely they are to be the generalist like you need to be starting out in multifamily, a little bit of everything. Thanks for that explanation there. That's uh, I think I think a lot of people have the same same issues and looking at uh, I, I spent 20 years in government in the military and you know when I got into the Pentagon you know one person at one desk does one single thing they're yeah. cogs in the wheels and my understanding is corporate America isn't uh, isn't too dissimilar well cool how's a day in life right now for you as a a full-time real estate entrepreneur it's interesting because okay so a few months ago I no longer have my w2. But I also, I'm an army reservist. And so I have this commitment um, that I have. And, you know, typically it's one weekend a month and then a couple weeks a year. Um, well, I just went to a school last month. I've been pretty much off off the grid for a month. And now I'm just getting back into it. It's like right now is when I'm first starting to go off on my own and be full-time on my own. It's kind of scary. Um, you know, I don't have the like, consistent paycheck anymore, but I know that I'm, my hours are worth way more now. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing the thousand dollar an hour tasks, not the, the $60 an hour tasks. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That, that's one thing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant now of and trying to offload as many of the, the lower dollar per hour tasks as I can just to, just to make sure that I'm focused on the right things. I would say for most aspiring syndicators, you know, up front, you got to be that generalist. You got to be that do everything and, you know, know a little bit of everything, get the ball rolling and then start looking at offloading. That's, that's, that's a great, great point. So let's let's talk a little bit about you know one of the properties that you you've done you've gotten under contract and have operated. Pick sure. your first or your favorite and and let us know a little bit about it. Yeah, it was one that we actually uh, just sold about a month ago in nice. Phoenix. It's in uh, an aplex in Phoenix that we uh, we actually this was a flipping deal, so we flipped it in eight months. Mm -hmm. uh, the purchase price was nine hundred thousand dollars, which was about one hundred twelve point five thousand dollars per unit. We spent uh, a little over half a million dollars on the renovations, so almost seventy thousand a door. It was like full gut job renovation, and then uh, we it's sold seventy thousand a door. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're doing like everything. Make sure. So, make yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's that's a big number for renovation. You rip into its studs and redo yeah. almost everything. Yeah. yeah so okay. it's it's quite expensive, and and renovations got a, a lot more expensive over the past year as well. It's definitely tough to make the numbers work right now. So we spent uh, like $550,000 on that, which was about uh, almost $70,000 a door for the eight units, which is like doing almost everything. Yeah. But we found that renovations are have gotten significantly more expensive um, in the past year you know, due to inflation and different supply chain issues. So it's becoming very difficult to make numbers work in, in Phoenix yeah. um, on our renovation jobs. Okay. Yeah, that was that was a great project. Uh, we were able to uh, achieve a project level return on investment of sixty six percent, which was awesome, and that trickled down to a forty six percent for uh, our investors after the the promote payment. So e even after putting seventy thousand in per unit, you were able to still hit that sixty percent mark. Yeah. All right, that's that's a lot of value add. Um, how how long did you guys hold the property? That was eight months. 
eight months. Okay. Yeah. I know rents and values in Phoenix have, have done extremely well over the last couple of years. And so uh, I, I think part of that, I'm, I'm guessing part of that is tailwinds, but at the same time, you know, if you're, if you're putting $70,000, there, there's got to be enough meat on the bone there for uh, the juice has to be worth the squeeze. You know, how, how, I guess how many different price. Use? Yeah. You know, we got in at a good price and, you know, r- rents were going up like crazy. Yeah. And then we also had, we were able to lock in buyers within a couple months of, of owning it ourselves. Um, there's a lot of demand from the Chinese right now for American real estate. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phoenix is one of those markets that they like. And so we were able to find a, uh, a group of Chinese investors to to put it under contract. Mm-hmm. Now, when you guys were doing this gut rehab, did you did you empty the building? Did you buy it empty? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. We did. So, you know, we typically look for buildings that are uh, on month to month leases mm-hmm. or that have, you know, near term expirations or are, are vacant. I believe with this one, it was month to month tenants. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to uh, give 30 day notices and then have the building cleared so that we could renovate. Okay. And so you did the entire building and then before selling it, did you start putting new tenants in or did you leave that to the the next owner? For this one, since it was already under contract uh, before completion, uh, we didn't actually have to do lease up. But for another one that we're working on, which is a sevenplex, mm-hmm. uh, we're in the process of lease up right now because it's not under contract. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. It's a lot easier to sell a leased up building because of the uh, the financing and and the day one cash flow. So it's much more difficult for for someone to acquire an empty building. That does make sense. I mean, on the flip side, I mean, it depends on who the buyer is. You know, a lot of people who are in that position trying to lease up buildings. We've been on the receiving end of of one of these before, where. You know, sometimes the the goal is just to fill it as fast as you can. You know, so it's you got to know what the buyer is looking for. If you have a buyer lined up, you know that that's a that's a term of negotiation. Right. Hey, do you want us to fill it, or do you guys want to come in and start filling it yourselves? And uh, right. I think there's there, there's a little bit of go between on that one. Absolutely. Um, and one thing you mentioned about trying to fill it up as fast as possible, that that's absolutely right. And but not only that, filling it up at the highest rents possible so that the, the cap rate's higher um, because it, it'll it'll be a better deal to get a higher price for it. Yeah. So it's um, you know, it, we'll we'll do gift cards, you know, as, as high as you know, two thousand, twenty five hundred dollars um, just to get someone in at the rent price that we want. Um, And so we're kind of, you know, playing the game of trying to lease it up quickly, um, but also getting the higher rents is more important. Yeah. And that's, that's where, you know, a lot of people when they underwrite, I know a lot of the the newer investors, when they underwrite, they completely glance over that concessions line, you know, but uh, a lot Mm -hmm. of times you you, you give a little bit to get a lot more in, in the end. And that's, that's, exactly I'd rather what give, I'd rather give a gift card or, or a concession yep. or a discount than lower the rent because uh, the, the concession doesn't always, uh, you know, hit your, your, your stabilized NOI. It doesn't really transition over to the cap rate, whereas the, uh, the rent does. It absolutely does. I mean, the, the concession will come out on one single month, you know, eight, nine, 10 months later, you know, when that tenant's been paying the high rent for, for six or eight months, it's on their T3 income where that concession mm-hmm. drops off. It'll be on the T6 income and the concession's already dropped off. So, yeah, I think you make a great point. But, and on the flip side, it's not necessarily indicative of the market rent. 
because you gave a you know you gave a big concession to get someone in there at a higher than market rate. All right. Well, cool. So that sounds like a, an amazing deal. Glad it worked out yeah. for you. And um, we wish you the best success on on the next ones that you guys are running. That said, question I'd love to ask everybody. It's it's like peeking into somebody's soul. Not really. I'd like to learn a little bit more about your motivation. So what's, what's your big burning why? It's interesting. I actually uh, thought a lot about this. So the first reason why I do this is because I'm a deal junkie. I love doing deals. Um, it's just it, what gets me going, what wakes me up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is for me, and I think actually for almost everyone, it's the best risk adjusted way to get wealthy mm-hmm. other than finding a, a pure arbitrage mm-hmm. in, in the in the secondary markets. Um, you know, you get high returns with low volatility. It's leveraged. Uh, you pay almost no taxes or you defer the taxes. Um, and then you get monthly cash flows as well. So I think it's like the, the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third thing is the passive income so that I can do what I want with my family forever. And so that's that's really but but multifamily specifically, um, the, the reason why I'm interested in multifamily is number one, because it's it's scalable. It takes me almost the same amount of time, same amount of work to manage a 10plex or a, or a 20plex as it does a single family house, which is crazy. And then the value of that property is tied to the income for an apartment building. Unlike you know single family where it's a lot of like market hype and comps and speculation. And when you can quantify the value, you can then project an exit price and you can forecast cash flows, which makes it less risky for the investors. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, it's easier to leverage. So unlike applying for like a normal home loan where they go through all of your, your pay stubs and your tax returns and everything like that, it's usually based on the numbers of the deal, not your personal finances. So That's something that is amazing. I mean, we, we talked about, or I mentioned earlier, the W-2 thing and, and trying to get a home loan. I eventually got the home loan. But it was difficult without that W-2 but I've signed on, you know, ten different commercial loans without anybody right. asking question about my W two. So I probably have like thirty million dollars of debt. That's like yeah, I mean, commercial, I, right? Well, we we've sold. I probably yeah, I've racked up more than thirty million dollars of debt. We sold a couple of assets already, so that number's you know probably a more reasonable twenty million right now. I mean, end of the day, you know, without without a W two income, you know, banks are standing in line trying to you know give me. Five, ten, fifteen million dollar checks. Whereas, you know, the local bank down the road, it's like, oh, you know, we can't use that income. It's got to be this type, you know. Anyway, great now, point. When you do get into like the bigger deals, though, you, you do need to have like what they call, I think, reserves. So you, usually you bring in a, a, a KP or a key person right. to just hold millions of dollars in their bank account and provide their bank statements just to yeah. show that, you know, your, your group has the reserves to pay. But that's, still nowhere near the the level of invasiveness of like applying for a regular mortgage. Yeah. There are a lot of people, I'm starting to to meet more and more of these folks. There, there's a lot of people with large balance sheets that keep seven or low eight figures liquid so they can literally qualify for every single potential loan yeah. out there for multifamily properties. And it's, yeah. it's almost like balance sheet for sale is, is, is what and it it's is. It's a great way to, to get sponsor shares. I mean, those people are getting, you know, 10, 20, 30% of the sponsor shares for, yeah. for doing almost nothing. 
So it's it's lucrative for them as long as they're picking their their partners wisely and as long as they're right. picking their deals wisely. I have heard of a couple of people get on the lender blacklist because they they sponsored a deal that went south. So there there is some risk involved, but you know, once again, as as a new aspiring investor, you don't have to have the same type of finances. You don't have to have that five million dollar net worth to get a five million dollar loan because you can right. find somebody who does. So great, great point there too. So Eliza, last question for you. What's sure. next? Yeah, so I've got 30 units right now that are under renovation mm -hmm. and I've got three properties for sale. And we've noticed a significant slowdown in the, the, the market. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, I'm in the Phoenix market. Um, so we're being very careful right now and trying to focus on uh, our current projects um, and I, I don't think we'll be looking to do any more of those short-term deals for the time being, um, at least until the market uh, stabilizes a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but for our next phase, uh, we're really looking for deals in the, the 50 to 100 unit range. You know, we did those three to, to 20 unit deals over the past three to four years. And now I'm looking to go bigger. And with that, I want to use a, a seven to 10 year strategy and mm -hmm. go more for cash flow than, uh, you know, a three to five year quick, you know, equity, equity flip. We're looking to partner up also with other funds so that we'll just provide capital raising services in exchange for sponsor shares. I realized that doing all of the jobs from finding the deal, underwriting, asset management, and capital raising, everything. It's its too much. Like I'm getting burned out doing all that. One piece of advice Jim Biggs gave me was try to like be the best at like one of those things. And so I think like the direction that we're trying to move in is to be, you know, really good at raising capital. And mm -hmm. if we can find deals that are really good that we also want to operate, we'll, we'll do that too. But Mm -hmm. I'd like to at least take the easy route on a few deals in the future, just raising capital, yep. getting sponsor shares, uh, yep. things like that. We've got a lot of investors that, you know, we want to make sure that their their capital is allocated to strong deals. So that's what we're going to do. I, I like the idea and I'm I'm doing the same thing for, for the first time ever. I am just mm -hmm. raising capital on a deal. It's a nice place to be. It's It's still a lot of work, but... I definitely agree with what you say. It's We talked about this earlier, going from generalist to specialist. New syndicators, I think, have to be generalists, but you know, eventually, you know, the, the money, a lot of the money comes in specialization. There are a lot of people who are really good at finding deals, a lot of people who are really good at raising money. You can get really good at one of those things. You can do extremely well in this industry. Well, cool. I'm going to shift gears now and bring Beth on. So, Beth, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. Let's talk a little bit about you today. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio with my husband, five dogs, and we just became empty nesters because our only daughter started her freshman year at the University of Kentucky. We've been in Cincinnati, or I've been in Cincinnati for 26 years, my husband all his life. We're serial entrepreneurs. We started a construction business. We built outdoor living spaces. We started that together a year after we met. We weren't even engaged and kind of took that leap of faith. And throughout that time, uh, I also had, um, as a side business, I had a catering business, a women's golf apparel and accessory business. It was all online. And then I also had a fitness studio. Mm -hmm. And now here I am in real estate. So I've done 
a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. So what, what uh, drove you to real estate? Funny that you asked that. I've always been drawn to real estate. I actually, uh, back in 2005, started taking some real estate classes. We had, uh, my husband and I considered purchasing a franchise called Help You Sell. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was one of those franchises um, that would, you know, you basically would pay nominal dollars to get your house listed on the MLS and this entity, this real estate brokerage company, which just you weren't paying the three percent, so to speak, um, if you were going to, you know, sell your house. And uh, so we had looked at that, and I started taking some classes. And then, for the life of me, I can't recall like what mm-hmm. prompted us to just back off, but we did. And then, you know, we've always just kind of been drawn to it. Or one night, middle of the night, my, I think my husband wasn't able to sleep, and. You know, he's watching some infomercial on on flipping houses and how someone was going to come to our area and talk to us, you know, sell us on how to flip houses. Mm-hmm. So he signed up. And uh, next thing I know, we're, we're heading to this one day wonder that led to mm-hmm. a three day weekend event that led to mm-hmm. a five day bus tour in Southern California. And in 2018, we started flipping houses. And so that's how we how we sort of got into it, which my story is a lot like so many people who start off in single family. But then it was a little over a year ago that I attended a multifamily workshop syndication mm-hmm. or syndication workshop, I should say. Yep. And uh, uh, the gentleman that I went with, he was like, I, I just want to buy a hundred apartments or hundred units, hundred unit apartment building. I'm like, how in the heck can we do that? You know, I thought it was absolutely impossible. I mean, I really did not understand that it is possible to do something like this. I thought that was just always so far out of reach. Mm -hmm. But at the end of this workshop, my eyes were completely wide open. And I was like, ah, like, okay, like, let me jump into this. I'm ready to go. So I started, you know, just Hopping on Facebook and joining every single Facebook group that there was, and and um, learning as much as I could, and just you know the networking thing from Facebook to LinkedIn to Instagram, mm-hmm. um, and and just immerse myself, and and I became that generalist, you know, um, learning how to underwrite, taking, um, you know, if someone had a, an underwriting workshop or a Zoom, you know, that would teach you how to underwrite. I think I signed up for you know Michael Blanks and, and everybody's, you know learning that. Um, and then uh, someone approached me one day and said, you know, if you really want to get involved in a deal, he's like, why don't you capital raise? I'm like, capital raise? Yeah. No, that's not for me at all. And uh, I said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a try, I guess. He, he asked me, he said, well, how do you feel that you would do? I'm like, well, on a scale of what? He said, one to five. I said, three. And he said, well, that's, you know, at least better than 50%. So why not give it a whirl? So one investor that is local to me here in Cincinnati, who um, we've done some single family clips with, I approached him about this particular deal and uh, he invested 250000 into the deal. And I was nice. like, boom, there I am. But that was it. I was That was the only investor I brought to the table, but it was something. And so I thought, okay, it yeah. was a start. It was a start. Capital raising is possible. Yeah, amazing. So, well, cool. Uh, so let's we're we're gonna move into the question and answer. Actually, before we do, I gotta ask you the big burning why question. I can't skip that. So, Beth, what's your big burning why? My daughter. 
a legacy for my daughter. She is our one and only. And, you know, she's been the kind of the driving force behind so many things. I, I battled cancer seven years ago. She was my why then. And I feel like it's, it's just a, a solid opportunity for me to give back to her for all the support that she's given me. Um, even though she's only 18 years old, I feel like I've just been able to take so much from her. So she's my why. I love it. I love it. Why is typically we revolve around around family more often than not. So mm-hmm. very much appreciate it. Beth, we got Elijah on the line. What do you want to ask him? First off, I just want to say I love your story. It's great. I love that you started so young. I'm kicking myself that I wasn't able to do it. And, and and I think to something that you said, Brian, you know, the older you get, the more fear that you have. Mm-hmm. If you could tell me to go back in time and put myself back in your shoes right now, what would you tell me about? Because I'm still new to the capital raising thing and I find myself completely paralyzed some days with it. But you seem to have, seems to come easy. So I'm curious, what's your secret? Do you have any tips, tricks, anything that I can extract that? Maybe if I put myself in your shoes 20 years ago, I can emulate that. Well, Beth, just hearing your story, I think, Brian, I think we got the the roles reversed on this one. I think uh, Beth is the experienced investor here. It's a really incredible story. All I'd say is that the only difference between flipping a single family house and doing a $100 million deal is your confidence. Why not just add a couple zeros? It's really going to be the same amount of work, maybe a little more work, but there's absolutely no reason why you can't just swing for the fences and do it, especially with your track record of successful businesses, you're probably in a really good position to succeed with whatever goal that you you have. Just go into it with confidence and figure it out. I would say, you know, confidence is definitely the biggest, the biggest piece of it. You know, when I started, that's what I lacked was the confidence. And because I lacked the confidence, I didn't want to put myself out there. And because I wasn't putting myself out there, I wasn't finding the the investors. I wasn't finding the, the things that I needed to do. Yeah, I mean, confidence is absolutely huge in, in the game. Once again, I think difference between somebody who's young and you know, ha- hasn't had that, maybe some of the bad experiences, but mm-hmm. you know, they, they come out, when I was 17, I thought I could do everything. I didn't think there was anything in the world that I couldn't do. And you know, now that I'm 40 something, every once in a while, I still have the same same confidence issues. Can I really do this? You know, even, even though I've done 10 properties and raised, you know, over $10 million, can I still do this next time? Yeah, I think confidence is huge. And then then once you get the confidence, just start putting yourself out there, start building the systems, start building the relationships. Okay, great. Thank you. Another question for you. Obviously, you have a team. I'm curious as to how you found your team. Did, did you cycle through you know, some people until you found the ones that you felt confident that you could move forward with, or were they just buddies? You all decided to get into this. I'm curious as to how that came about. Yeah, just different people I've met along the journey. Um, you know, I've had a few different partners and team members. They come from different places. Well, you know, the guy I'm currently partnered with on Goldhawk Capital, which is the fund that we're running now, I was partnered with someone else at the time and he was pitching us a deal and I really liked him. I saw a lot of potential in him and I'm like, hey, why don't you why don't you come work for us? So he did and he, he already knew a lot of what was going on and we were able to train him on some other stuff. And I 
our personalities aligned and we worked well together. So we ended up starting our own venture once the other one wrapped up. I've met a lot of people along the way. A lot of people come in just through basic networking, just reaching out, looking for deals, trying to raise money from people. And when you find someone that you think would add value to your operation, ask them to to come on board. I think there's a lot to network. I think a lot of people leave a whole lot on the networking table. In my opinion, I think the the key to finding partners is start to collaborate. Whatever level you do is, you know, if you if you meet somebody and you like them, find a way to start to collaborate. And if you can start the collaboration process, it's almost like dating. You know, you're you work together on a couple of small things, you know, maybe you're helping each other with underwriting, but you'll quickly decide if hey, this is this person has long-term potential as a partner or not. I talk to a lot of people who are in similar positions as you, Beth, and a lot of those are people are looking for the same thing. They're looking for partners. Two months will go by and I'll talk to them again. They're like, yeah, we're not together anymore. It wasn't a good fit. But I think that's that's really what needs to happen is that collaboration. However big or small it may be, just start with with some sort of collaboration when you meet people and take it from there. That's really helpful. I know um so many people I talk to, they're they're in the business this week and the following week they're no longer. It's hard to find somebody who's sticking and staying. And so that's uh it's good to know. So it thank is. you. I appreciate that. It is. I just was curious, are you gonna continue to stay in the Phoenix market? You know, it's getting really difficult right now with the, the pr- pricing, I think, is going to adjust a bit, but it's you know, we're having a hard time right now getting, you know, consistent offers on our properties for sale and the, the renovation costs just keep going up. It's hard to tell. I'd like to because I'm you know, I spent the past year building a strategy and a business in the Phoenix market, but I'm also open to other places where I can actually get cash flow. I've realized that there's really just no cash flow to be had um, in in the Phoenix market. You know, even with the rents being so high, it's just it's hard with with interest rates being high. And I think I'll definitely be interested in looking at other markets. Yeah, and I noticed uh, Elijah, you said you were you're transitioning from a, a short hold model to a longer term model. You know, I think I think there's cash flow available in every market. You just got to change how much debt you bring to the table. If you come in at 50% leverage, you can probably get cash flow in Phoenix. But I mean, the question is, if you come in at 50% leverage, are you going to get the returns you want? But when you put up more equity than your cash on cash, you know, yep. down. at the end of the day, I'm really looking for cash on cash. And, you know, I, I would love to be above 10% cash on cash. And that's that's very hard to find right now. Most of the syndication deals that I'm seeing come across my desk are in the five to seven percent area. I think at least for a syndicator who can bring a, a 10 to 12 percent cash on cash deal, that will be very attractive to, yeah. to people. Yeah, I think so. And my my understanding is Ohio is a great place to find that cash flow. You know, it is. You're you're where it's at. Yeah, I'm actually looking at a small JV property in Akron, Ohio, right now. I know it's the other side of the state for me, Beth, but something that's got me excited. Anyway, last question for each of you because we we do have to wrap up. And Elijah, you get to go first. How can okay. listeners learn more about you? Well, hopefully, those, those listeners be coming back. That's no, right. <laughs> the company that. I'm running right now is called Goldhawk Capital, and you can go to goldhawk.us, or you can find me on on Instagram at Elijah W. Brown. I'm not super active there, but feel free to follow me, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Beth, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Sure. You can visit my website at www.lifestyleequities.com. 
group.com. There are two E's in there with between lifestyle and equities. Find me on LinkedIn under Beth Januzzi Underhill. Just started my Instagram at uh, investing with Beth. It's new. Um, so follow me. So I have more followers. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that's where you can find me. All right. Awesome. We'll make sure we have those in the show notes. And you know what? The Diary of an Apartment Investor is also on Instagram. So while while you're on Instagram following these two, definitely give us a follow as well. Thanks for your time, both of you. Very much appreciate it. And this is going to be a great little show. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.